Welcome everyone to the Tandem Launch, the launch podcast. This special episode is on deep tech startups and we have a really fantastic panel today that we're going to have some deep tech fundraising and entrepreneurial discussions. Uh, So welcome to our guest speakers. First one, Scott Pelton co-founded Risk Capital in 2019 to fund Canadian deep tech opportunities. He's been investing in private companies in Canada for over 20 years with previous experience at Mars IAF, Round 13, Growthworks Capital, and Scotiabank's original FinTech fund, East Scotia. Scott graduated with a computer engineer and management degree from McMaster University and worked in technical roles at startups and large firms. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Bobby. We're happy to be here and excited for how deep tech is coming together in Canada. Next on our panel, David Charbonneau is the founder and managing partner of Boreal Ventures, $26 million venture fund supporting Quebec's most promising deep tech startups, and from pre-seed to series A. The fund strives to build bridges with local and international investors alike and become a partner of choice for Canadian landscape. Prior to founding Boreal Ventures, David worked at BDC Capital, where he helped manage a $135 million early stage venture fund specialized in industrial and clean tech. David also spent four years in management consulting and strategy at KPMG Secor, where he supported executives on investment decisions, strategic planning, and post-merger integration. David holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, as well as a master's in industrial engineering focused on technology management. So welcome, David. Hi, Bobby. Thanks for having me on the show. Next, we have Natalie Marcoux, CPA, CA, is Vice President of Finance at Capina Bell Inc., a private holding company since 2001. She's a member of the board of TC Transcontinental Inc., a publicly listed company. She's president of the advisory board of the Ashisi Incubator, the Remy Marcoux Entrepreneurial Track. Natalie is also a member of the Tannen Launch LPAC and president of the advisory board of the Carmel and Remy Marku Chair in Arts, Finance, Arts Management. She's involved uh, as a member of the Jury of Startup Fest and C2 Montreal's 25 Emerging Entrepreneurs and has been a regional and national member of Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year contest. She's also an investor in various Canadian startups and a mentor for many entrepreneurs. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you very much for having me. And last but not least, we have Charles L'Esperance, partner at uh, BDC's Capital Deep Tech Venture Fund created in 2021. Charles served as the Assistant Vice President Ecosystem Development after he joined BDC Capital in 2016. He also played a key role in the formation of and deployment of BDC's bridge financing program during the COVID-19 pandemic. Previously, Charles worked in private equity at PSP Investments and management consulting at McKinsey and Company, uh, where his main functional areas were strategy, operations and finance, with a focus on extractive resources, including the mining and oil and gas sectors. Charles holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from McGill University, and as well as an MBA from Harvard University. So welcome, Charles. Thanks, Bobby. Excited to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, so we have a very, very um, exciting, those are some really interesting backgrounds. I think we can learn a lot from all of you. And so for me, I'm Bobby Bedochka, Venture Associate of Tandem Launch and host of the Launch Podcast, and I'll be your moderator today. So let's get going. Um, so David and Charles, 
question for you. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in today's business landscape in relation to deep tech startups? So that's a, uh, that's a very good question. For me, what, what really, uh, what's really interesting these days is the story about how much capital is, the market, is in the market currently and how it trickles down into different asset class and makes it to deep tech. So as we know, there's a lot of quantitative easing by various governments uh, across the world to uh, sort of ease the effect of the pandemic and how that money trickled down in the economy is, is really interesting. So as you can imagine, uh, on the risk return matrix, venture capital is sort of like on the top right. Uh, and as there's more money in the market, we're getting to riskier and riskier type of innovation. So we're actually moving away from the high margin SaaS based type of innovation that usually gets uh, funded. And we're actually seeing an increasing amount of capital going towards the sort of like longer term deep tech innovation that acts as a, as a platform on which uh, whole industries can be built, uh, built on. So what's interesting with this story is that as the tide rose, we're not only seeing more capital trickling down to venture capital, but we're also seeing corporates having more and more capital to invest in the future, invest in those startups, actually taking on riskier R&D focused project. But not only that, you know, with the crisis, we've seen uh, the whole dynamic with the semiconductor crisis that also sort of like rose the awareness uh, of governments on the necessity to rethink supply chains especially when it comes to, uh, to semiconductor and actually use the supply chain uh, on, to unshore some capabilities that were initially offshore to, to Asia and whatnot and actually recreate an entire ecosystem in North America. So to me, these days, the, the whole story of this amount of capital in the market recreates an entire landscape that's actually beneficial for deep tech. Yeah, I think, you know, building on what David is saying, I think that the two key trends here are more capital and, and more involvement from government. So, you know, I think on the capital side, the benefit that has had is the more capital is available, the more uh, kind of aggressive or ambitious the ideas can actually be funded right now. Um, I think kind of the poster child for that trend would be what we're seeing in quantum computing where you know, quantum computing was a tough business to fund for a long time. I mean, people are still far away. That's broadly recognized and understood. Uh, but we're still seeing billions of dollars being poured into the space because you know, there's, just, there's enough capital right now. People feel there's the availability to make those long, long, kind of long range bets. The second, I think, big trend that David is pointing out is the one around government. So I think all of this idea around kind of governments onshoring their supply chain and recognizing the importance um, is, is basically this trend that we've seen towards protectionism is highly amplified in the deep tech sector. Many governments have recognized over the last couple of years that you know national security and economic security kind of go hand in hand. And deep tech is probably one of the areas where that is most pronounced. You know, you've seen that again, notably in the quantum industry recently. The U.S. has launched the QBDC. In Europe, a bunch of quantum initiatives. In France, in the U.K., most recently in Canada, you've had one come up. I think cryptography is also an area of interest where China is developing their own standards. The U.S. is developing their own standards. And who gets to export where is also still very much in flux. So developing kind of local capabilities, understanding the complexities of supply chains. Geopolitics is just playing an increasingly important role in deep tech today. And I think that's an important trend. 
Well, I'm really happy to to hear you both say that because I know I, I do talk to a lot of investors and over and over again, if you're not a SaaS or a marketplace, and it's like there's just this, uh, you know, underestimation of how important deep tech is and and almost like it's more sustainable in, in the long term because you're really building things that are foundational, you know, marketplaces and things are, are quite fickle. Um, and so that's that's really great to hear. And and also there, yeah, we are seeing a lot of increase in corporations opening up their their venture arm. So then, um, you know, so more for Scott and David. Aside from you know your normal understanding of the investment has a return on investment, but what are the secondary motivations then to be um, for investors or corporate CVCs to be investing in deep tech? Go first. Um, I, there, I, to me, there's three. <clears throat> there's the excitement. Like, where else can you go other than Las Vegas to invest in? Here's what Gartner Group says. A potential technology uh, break, breakthrough kicks things off. Early proof of concept stories and media interest trigger significant publicity. Often no usable products exist and commercial viability is unproven. To me, like, that's, that's so exciting. This is how Gartner Group um, describes the technology trigger at the beginning of the hype cycle. And it's sort of where, where deep tech lives. Um, I also think that, you know, there's a corporate social responsibility angle to this, that batteries, uh, green tech. Um, we've seen uh, ways to capture the wind that are very innovative that don't involve wind turbines. This, this can be really rewarding for people that, you know, are pursuing um, corporate social responsibility. And also, I just think it's, if you have a background in it, the technical risks that people are worried about in deep tech and the things are different when you can see deep tech through an engineer or a PhD's eyes, I think. You know, just just to uh, to expand on that, I think you're you're mentioning really interesting point, especially around uh, sort of like the, the social responsibility. At its core, deep tech is about solving big issues, big problem, and actually uh, trying to use technology in an efficient way unto which we can then build more technology, sort of like the foundation of a house. So to me, what's really interesting about deep tech is that it's solving global challenges, maybe from curing disease and fixing healthcare. And, you know, we have to think about even what, what happened with BioNTech and, you know, the, va the vaccine, which could, to a certain extent, uh, be qualified as deep tech that actually, you know, had a very impactful, uh, <clears throat> a very impactful uh, sort of take on the society. But what's more important is also all the questions we have around global warming, about food system sustainability and how we need to use and leverage technology to just create a more cohesive society. So to me, the, the reason beyond ROI, why I believe deep tech is interesting is because it is solving those big global challenges, or at least it is a step in the right directions to do so. Okay, and then so since we know that it has an important foundational aspect and you know technology is really um you know going to drive a lot of these initiatives a, a challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs uh face is getting that first lead investor um and so is there really a genuine reluctance to be a lead investor or like why do you think is the reason it's so high maybe just people don't want to go first or what is the what's the I guess the back end, the, the unknown reason. So this is a question that comes back very often on the market. And I, I will try to give you an answer that is as candid as possible and sort of like 
opens opens up to the mind of an investor. So whenever an investor comes in into a deal, uh, we look to invest as a syndicate, essentially to de-risk uh, our investments and use a portfolio approach, but also to have uh, like-minded people with whom we know we can work and actually uh, be on capital add value to the companies. So the whole idea of having that reluctance to lead is actually for, for two reasons. First of all, you want to know who you you will be working with because you know whenever we invest in early stage venture we know we will be uh close with the company for five to eight years but it's the same with the investors as well so we want to make sure that we create a syndicate that beyond capital works on a human perspective but also on sort of like a skill set perspective and that together we can create a syndicate that actually helps the company get to the next level so always think beyond uh, beyond the valuation and beyond just a dollar sign. And sort of like the second point to this. So whenever we lead an investment and we actually send a leading term sheet, uh, it opens up the door to not necessarily knowing who will be on the other side. So we, we want to make sure that the valuation is right, that the terms we're setting will be accepted by the community. So very often it's easier to have those conversation in between investors so that together we can co-lead deals and make sure we de-risk ourselves by choosing the right partners around the table for the companies. Yeah, I, I, so I agree with everything David just said. I think a big part of it is around the syndication. And I think that you know when you think about the deep tech sector, it's got kind of, I'd say, two big defining characteristics with respect to kind of software SaaS, um, if you will. So on the one side is, Everyone goes into this knowing that it's going to take longer and it's going to take more capital than a software business. What that means is that if you're going to go in as a lead, you're putting in a pretty big check. You need to make sure that you have enough dry powder to kind of follow on for another couple of rounds and defend that position through time. So, you know, if for someone to lead, they need to have a pretty sizable fund. They need to be at the right place in their investment period that they know that they're going to have enough range to do this. And it's it, it can be difficult for a lot of funds to get comfortable with that if they're not specifically set up to do it. The second point is kind of a corollary. So, you know, when you look at most venture funds today that, you know, in Canada and even in the US, um, their core business is very much SaaS. And so specialist funds in the deep tech sector are few and far between. So for them getting comfortable with market risk or with business risk is something that's core, it's something they're used to. Getting comfortable with the technical risk on top of that is something that can be a significant hurdle to get over for a lot of these funds. It can be difficult for them to, you know, both to David's prior point about pricing and valuation, understand how much value has actually been created in the business if it's mostly through technical milestones and de-risking as opposed to through revenue. And then it's also difficult for them to assess what the risk of failure through technical milestones is with respect, you know, versus just failure of scaling and market reception. And so you basically need to find a fund that has that kind of specific expertise in your sector of interest as a lead. And that's why it's difficult. There just aren't that many. There are a lot of deep tech verticals and there are not very many deep tech funds. And I think that explains a lot of the reluctance we're seeing. So that I'm just wondering if, if that is the case, then why don't investors often, once they know, okay, I'm interested in this technology, why you don't bring in other investors that you already know of that you'd like to invest with to 
to the rather than you know i guess leaving it to the to the startup or the entrepreneur to go find other investors that you may not want to be together with yeah so look i don't know how the others are going to answer this but that's kind of how i like to operate so if i'm going to go in on a deal that i like i'm going to call up people that i know and i'll tell them hey you should look at this with me i think this is a good deal yeah, and I, I totally echo Charles' point. You know, we, we are a very close-knit ecosystem where just by the fact that there are not that many deep tech funds, uh, we tend to know who are the investors that would be a good fit for the company. So the first, the first thing we do usually when we see an interesting pitch is that, you know, we grab the phone and we call each other. It's like, hey, okay, there's this interesting company. Have you looked at it? Do you want to take a look at it? Is this something that we could work together? So. Obviously, I think as there is more capital pouring into the ecosystem, more players, uh, <clears throat> there will be more investment players and more opportunities for, for founders to find the right, uh, the right fit. But this is a dynamic that's already happening behind the scenes. <laughs> okay, so, so I think that there's probably a lot of startups and entrepreneurs don't realize how much back channel conversations um, are, are happening. Um, I, I guess if it works in your favor, that's great. But so let, let's let's back up the bus a little bit. Um, so Natalie and Scott, when you are looking um, at at a company to fund, like what are you what are you considering? What are you looking at that that might get you excited about it? Uh, for myself, I'm going to look for um, uh, a disruptive technology. So a technology uh, that, uh, well, like David was saying, is solving a global um, global challenge. Uh, you know, something that's going to make uh, uh, something more efficient in uh, less time. Uh, let's say, like uh, electronic uh, cars, fifteen years ago. Uh, I'm going to also look at to see if there's a business model with that technology. That being said, the business model that we that the, the the entrepreneurs can have at the beginning can change over time, but you know it's it's uh, it's and at the same time is the entrepreneur being able to adapt to those changes. Uh, I'm gonna look for if there's a revenue model, uh, scalability, uh, barriers to entry. Also, if if the new technology, the disruptive technology, is easily um, replicatable, then it has less interest. And uh, finally, I'm going to look uh, at the entrepreneur. Nadia, I like your comment about adaptability. I think that's, that's so important. We, we try to figure out how life is really going to be at the startup if we were to invest. Um, how, um, I mean, everybody's on their best behavior when, when we meet, you know, we're kind of dating. Yeah. What's the real what's the real story at the, at the company, right? Because there's, there's always a public face and there's a real, real face. And we, we know that things are gonna be difficult after we invest, uh, things there's gonna be ups and downs and we, we wanna see the good side and the bad side of the entrepreneur. Um, we wanna have a candid chat about how we can share risks. There's a risk that they won't execute on their business plan. All VCs know this, we wanna talk about it. We don't wanna have the, the company tell us, this is a risk-free opportunity. I have nothing to worry about. You know that that, that makes us concerned. We, we expect risk at the stage we're coming in at, and also to Charles's point, uh, and with with our fund being the smallest of this group, um, how much money will it really take to get them to this inflection point that we can raise more money, and what are the triggers for that? So, if we're going to get uh, data catalysts to invest, how are we how are we going to convince them? What's what are the milestones that are going to drive their behavior, and just having an honest conversation with the entrepreneurs about that. 
important. If I can add a point uh, to start, um, I have a, a rule of thumb is, is do they do the money that then the, the, the entrepreneur is raising, do they have enough money with the money raised to last for a year without revenues? So that's, that's for me an indicator that they should be able to do something within a year with their product to be able to raise more money. So they should be able to, uh, to last one year with the money they raise. Yeah, I think that's really important to have a decent amount of runway plan on how you're going to uh, spend that money. So then um, on the same sort of topic, we hear often, you know, we don't invest in companies, we invest in teams, we invest in people. Um, so, I mean, how, how true is that really? And what are, what are, say, some three key factors that you might be looking for that either you want to see in them or you want to avoid maybe? So this is this is absolutely true, by the way. We don't really invest in a technology, really. We invest in the people behind it. And the reason be, the reason so is that it's the people that transform the technology into an actual business and actually transform it into an actual, you know, revenue model or into something sustainable. So for me, the three things that I that I usually look for in people are pretty straightforward. The first one is the ability to sell. This is, this is a skill set that is you know, not necessarily taught in school, but it's the ability to sell to your board, a top decision, sell to your employees, sell to your first customer, sell to a potential acquirer. Because at the end of the day, this, this transactional ability of being able to tell a story in a cohesive manner is at the core of every single transaction. So that's the first thing. The second thing is more of a softer skill around the fit. And Scott was mentioning, you know, this, this dating process. And truth be told, uh, investing in, in a company is not too dissimilar to dating. <laughs> we want to make sure that we, we get along well with the people we invest in because we will be spending sometimes even more time, given some weeks, with, with the entrepreneur and, and his team that we would spend with our own family. So, you know, we want to be there through the highs and lows and be able to support them and be on the same wavelength to help them get through those hurdles and actually scale. The third one is something a little bit softer, but it's their capacity to deliver. What I mean by this is there's a, there's a lot of hype around startup. A lot of people that like the sort of like between practices, startup life, the idea of doing pitch contests and you know, raising uh, non-dilutive capital left, right, and center. At the end of the day, I want to see people that deliver, that have a mission, that have certain milestones and are just driven towards those milestones. And this, this sort of like softer capacity to be goal-oriented is something that you can only learn by spending time with the individual, getting to know them and seeing how the company evolves over time. So very often we get asked, how come the diligence process takes so long, especially earlier stage? You know, there's not much data to look at. And it's for those specific reasons is that we're spending time getting to know the person that's in front of us. And this is not only good from the investor standpoint, but also for the entrepreneur. You're giving away equity in your business. You want to make sure that you have like-minded people on the other hand of the table. Because at the end of the day, you know, this is a relationship that, that could go sour both ways, both for the investor and the entrepreneur. So an advice for entrepreneur, take the time to get to know the people you're dealing with. And same thing with in investors. 
Uh, you have really good points, David. Uh, my, my first one is the same as yours, uh, your ability to sell. I phrase it as an initiative. So, um, so LG from Tandem Launch calls it a create event. So people who are able to, um, to have imagination and try new things, contact cl potential clients, uh, build a net network of uh, potential investors too. So uh, people who are able to uh, pass their ideas and, and, and sell. And it's, uh, it's too bad because for me, I think the, the idea of a salesman is a bit negative when, on the contrary, it's the first thing that you should have in an entrepreneur. Somebody who sells who can create passion and excitement in other people about their business. So that's the first one. Uh, also, I like to have an entrepreneur who's open to ideas and comments and even will go and ask questions. So somebody who's, who's going to come and say, hey, I have this issue. What do you think about it? And, and engage in discussions so the ideas um, uh, can uh, go forward. And I don't mean by that that I like an entrepreneur that does what you tell them, but that, that's not the point because they know, they know best what they need to do. But I like them when they go and, and fetch ideas and then decide for themselves what's best for their company. Um, also transparency. Uh, transparency uh, in uh, their action, uh, their results, and uh, also th that entrepreneurs that are not scared and uh, give news about what's happening in their business. So you're never uh, faced with a surprise when something bad or good happened. You've seen that you've seen it coming. So for me, transparency is very important too. And the, the, top, uh, the top would be also to have an entrepreneur that knows the sector where he's, he is in. So he has already a network uh, of people and knows the competition and, uh, you know, the do's and don'ts of that sector. That's about uh, it. I've always, <laughs> I, I've always thought that the data room should be more of the dating room. Um, I use the dating um, metaphor, you know, even when I'm talking to entrepreneurs about Tandem Launch and we're just trying to get to know you, it's kind of like dating before we invest in you. We, you know, it's, and you know, there's a saying, it's harder to get rid of an investor than it is to get rid of your husband. Um, so you want to make sure that, that you choose the right person. But so on that, just a follow-up question, um, given that, you know, getting to know people is, is um, really important. How has, um, doing this over zoom over the past year um how's that gone for all of you and and will you continue um to can you know getting to know people over zoom or will you go back to flying people all around the world for me i haven't done much over zoom this year so i prefer the 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 direct contact personal contact i echo at least point you know the direct contact is really is really important. You're getting so much more information. However, the thing with Zoom in the pandemic is that without even us knowing, we sort of had a window into the real people's life, you know, into their home. So sometimes you hear the kids in the background. Sometimes, you know, you see, you see where we're working from. And this actually opens up, I think, the conversation to something a bit more human. So on my end, I actually also like that dynamic of getting to know the individual beyond just the professional facade of some sort and getting to see the kids run in the background and understanding, you know, where they work from, what kind of 
I don't know, like decoration they like and, and whatnot. So to me, I, I like that window into people's life as well. Uh, I was gonna say, I mean, I think the, like like most of, of what has happened during the pandemic, um, the, the go forward model, once everything is resolved, is probably gonna be a bit of a hybrid. Um, I think that, you know, Zoom conversations have an undeniable efficiency to them that's pretty practical in the early stages of getting to meet an entrepreneur where a lot of the, the interaction has to be quite transactional and speed actually matters. And so being able to go through Zoom allows us to go through kind of more iterations and make sure that the information is conveyed concisely. But I think similar to, to Natali, um, I quite like being in person with people. I think that you know, um, it, it gives you a different sense for how comfortable you are going to be with someone. And, you know, Bobby, to your previous point, um, you know, an arranged marriage between an investor and an investee is is a tedious and a long relationship. And you want to make sure that there's there's a way to make it work. And that's, I find, usually best assessed in person. So some hybrid models probably going to be best going forward for me. I would just add, Bobby, that... Um you know, uh, uh, spending a few years doing this business, I've uh, I'm a sort of a pattern recognition machine. <laughs> I guess most investors are, and my pattern recognition ability through Zoom is untested. <laughs> um, so I, I still, you know, rely on um, that personal contact is where I've sort of honed my uh, my skills. So I, I I need that. I crave it. I find I find it can be extremely efficient on Zoom, but I'm uh, I'm missing something. So I'm looking forward to going back. Yeah, I think we all are. Great. Okay. So then um, question to everyone, one answer, each person, you can explain your answer though. What is the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs often make? Let's start with David. So talking about deep tech, uh, I think this one's going to make a lot of people smile. Uh, it's the actual overemphasizing of the tech. Uh, I've seen a lot of, you know, very, very smart technical person thinking that tech can solve every single answer. And, you know, I'm just one iteration away. This is the reason why, you know, customers are not adopting it, or this is the reason why I'm not getting to, uh, to the results that I wanted. Tech cannot solve everything. Uh, so be careful or actually be mindful of sometimes being overly technical or actually trying to find solutions that are overly technical. And sometimes, you know, the solution are a little bit softer, a little bit more on the unit side. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll echo David's point because I think it is very much kind of the one thing we see most in deep tech is um, emphasizing the technical problem over the business problem. And, you know, one thing that you'll often see to David's point is, you know, like a, an entrepreneur will really focus on one or two specs about his technology where he's an outlier and he really beats everyone else in the market. And his goal is to just improve that spec or those two specs until he blows everyone out of the water. But at that point, you ask the entrepreneur, well, who are you going to sell this to? And he comes up with 20 potential use cases. But his solution can be too sensitive for a whole bunch, not enough for others. The cost can make no sense. And so by focusing on the technical problem, they lose sight of the business problem. I think that you know, the technology is a means to an end because this is ultimately a business and not a research project. And that's something and a focus that I think is important that entrepreneurs keep when they're in deep tech. Mm. Uh, for me, it's uh, um, also a lack of focus. Um, 
you know, a new technology can, you can see many markets where you can apply it. I think at the beginning, you need to test those markets and evaluate which ones are going to be the most, uh, the, you know, produce the most, um, most uh, conclusion, positive conclusion uh, quickly. But at one point, often you need to, to select which market you're going to attack and go deeper. And uh, sometimes entrepreneurs have uh, the tendency to want to serve or work on all of those markets instead of selecting one or two where they will focus. So I guess it would be lack of focus. Uh, Bobby, for us, it's it's having uh, not, not seeing what we're expecting to see. And I, I made this point before, but if, if our average check is going to be half a million dollars into a seed stage company and we have a CEO, um, he or she is has a background in sales and had previously invented everything and we, we expect there to be some some um, grit like we expect there to be a, a that we need to have um, demonstrations of the tech and we, we don't want it to be super polished if you know what I mean we're not expecting that especially at the early stage that risk capital is investing in and we want to um, we want to have if, if they offer to give a demonstration you know we're going to take them up on it you know we're very happy that they've offered to demonstrate it but if they can't follow through on that that's that's a terrible thing so for us it's being too promotional is a big mistake i think entrepreneurs make mm. yeah there's clearly um a balance you know where you want yes. to talk about your tech well enough um but not every single detail the selling the demonstrating right. focusing yes i'm going to make sure that everybody at tenem launch listens to this over and over again um wonderful so then um Entrepreneurs often face a beggars can't be choosers situations. I've I've talked to quite a few investors, and it, it is the same thing about um, you know wanting to choose the right investor because you're going to be with them for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in most cases, especially in deep tech, because there's less of you, um, sometimes you you don't have a choice. You'd like to make a choice, but this is the only one who's offering a term sheet. So um, how can we overcome those types of challenges? And it's a difficult situation. It's it's because often, you know, the investors will want to see sales, but you need the financing to do sales. So it's it's the it's 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 the 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 wheel that don't don't work. And you know, your friend and family has limits, so that's that that's out. So. I think is when the earliest as possible is, is the idea of building a network before you need the money. So then when you need money, you already have people that know your business or your idea or you want what you want to do. Um, asking also to be introduced to people. Uh, often people will be happy to do that. Um, and, uh, and um, you know, not be able do uh, emails, newsletters, and, and get people involved and get people to know your, uh, your project, your, uh, your business. I would, um, Natalie, that's exactly the point I was going to make. So um, well done. I was going to, um, to just build on it. I mean, there is, there is more capital in deep tech than there's ever been. Um, there's more capital in Canada than there's ever been. So I think a key skill an entrepreneur could have is to be an optimist and hope that they don't end up with just one term sheet and try to, you know, do as much work as they can to prepare themselves for, uh, as Natalie said, 
you know, fortune favors the, the well-prepared, I think. And uh, it's, you just have so many more options if you're raising money when you're not raising money because you're having more relaxed conversations and investors can pick up on that. Um, and it just to keep the entrepreneurial optimism, it may be that you just get the one term sheet and then you have to do better next time or work with your new investor next time. So Natalie started with, uh, by hitting the nail on the head. So it's difficult for me to, to add to what Scott and Natalie just said, but I think it's the idea of seeing, uh, sorry to call it the game, but seeing what's going on from a second degree or actually trying to, uh, understand the, the forest from the trees and understanding the notes, the network, how decisions are taken. So the advice I would give uh, entrepreneurs is understand uh, how investors make decisions, how, you know, what they focus on, what they tend to look for and understand how those network of entrepreneur of investors actually connect. And from there, focus your time on the people that are that are actually more likely to develop a relationship with you and become investors down the road afterwards it's a matter of cult cultivating that relationship uh to get to the end goal um i think you know all excellent points i'll try to take this in another direction just to to be additive to the conversation to the extent i can um i say look i think if you're see you're looking at a term sheet and you don't like the investor who's offering it at the end of the day, that would hamstring your business as much as not raising the money. So, you know, the truth is you're probably better off not taking it. You're going to be hamstrung either way. So you might as well take the one option that's easiest for you to get out of, or that at least doesn't limit your future optionality. Um, you know, it sucks to think that way, but you may have to change your business model, see everything you can do to reduce your burn, try to get out of some of the capital intensity, figure out what your different levers are but instead of taking money you're not going to like that you think is actually possibly detrimental to you in future years then you know you're not not any further along if you take that term sheet i think you know the the second corollary point to that is i think because of how much money is in the market today i think the paradigm that we used to see of very structured investment rounds um, may or may not be as useful anymore i think that now opportunistic raising when it comes up, even if it's off of very predetermined and very structured rounds, is a perfectly acceptable way to raise money. So even if you're not actively looking, if a match that makes sense comes up, don't necessarily tell the investor to come back in nine to 12 months when you're raising a round. See whether there's a deal to be done now. Keep these people engaged, keep them at the table. There is no bonus point for structuring a nice clean round every 18 months. And so um, I think being opportunistic and realizing that taking on a bad investor is probably worse than no investor at all is probably kind of where I'd leave people. That's a really so, great point. So that uh, just inspires a secondary question here. Um, is there a case where um, a startup or an entrepreneur then might be better off to take debt because some of the banks have some very, um, you know, um, well-structured um, debt programs now for startups and then, Another question is sometimes it's hard just to get in. So that's great. Like, let's get in touch with investors ahead of time and start those conversations. But these days, most investors don't put their email on the website. Um, you try to connect with them on LinkedIn. If you're lucky, they accept your request. And then if you're lucky, they respond to your message. So then it's great to say that. But then how, like the actual, no matter how much of a hustler you are, and I can tell you because I do this all day long, you don't get the conversion rate of responses is quite low. 
So you're mentioning very interesting point, and I could actually piggyback on some things that Charles said. There are actually two separate things. The first part would be around debt and other source of capital. So there's this thinking in the venture community or the startup community, I should say, that raising venture capital is sort of like an accomplishment in itself. Yeah. You don't necessarily need venture capital. It's not all businesses that should be getting venture capital. There's nothing like getting money from a customer that is willing to de-risk your business and give you money for a proof of concept. And you'd be surprised by how far this will get you and also how easy it's going to open doors afterwards. So one advice for, for, for founders would be to not put on, on a pedestal venture capital because it's not. It's not an accomplishment itself. It's just a, a mean to an end, a way to get where you want to go. So that's the first thing. The second thing you mentioned about building relationship, I wouldn't see raising venture capital and building a network as a numbers game. It's not a matter of how many doors you knock on. It's a matter of from the get-go, taking a step back, understanding you know, who those people are, and actually before engaging with them, trying to understand which one would be a better fit, trying to you know, go one step deeper and looking at investments they made. So beyond the description of the website, what have they actually invested in? What geography? What stage? Uh, you know, what technology? And, and educate yourself on the individuals before you engage with them. This will create, you know, the, the, the process will be a little less frustrating at the end of the day because you won't get as many no's. And you'll, you'll spend your time engaging with people that are actually uh, well aligned with what you're trying to build. Yeah, I think um, in terms of having difficulty connecting with investors, I, if you see it from our perspective, right, uh, like sourcing deals that are a good fit with my investment thesis is basically my core function. And so at the end of the day, if you're looking for an investor that is a good fit for your business, and that would be me, there should be a way to make that work, right? So I think, you know, saying that it's, in, if it becomes insurmountable with a fund, then it's likely to think that that fund would probably not be a good fit for you and your company anyways, because I'm trying just as hard to find your company as you're trying to find me. So, so I think, you know, recognizing that sometimes if you're hitting dead ends, it's probably just not meant to be, it is likely a good guess. I think on the point with respect to venture debt, um, I think that one requires a lot of nuance. Um, basically, it comes down to how soon you're going to cash flow. Um, I think if you're expecting to spit out cash relatively quickly, then debt can be a perfectly good option. Because I think to David's point, venture capital is something you raise when you must, uh, not necessarily just because you want to. It's, it's an expensive form of capital and it's difficult to get rid of. Um, I think that on, on the other hand, if it's because you're struggling to raise VC, but you're still a while away from cash flowing and you're gonna need more equity in the future, raising a lot of debt is a tricky proposition because when I put my money in, I want it to go towards de-risking the business and towards de-risking my investment. I don't want it to go to face Silicon Valley bank or profit. And so I think, you know, we have to be a little bit careful. I don't usually love venture debt on the deep tech business unless it's about to start cash flowing. I, I would just add um, the, if, if we're raising venture debt at an early stage, 
part of the security that I have is intellectual property that's in the company. And often that venture debt will be secured on the intellectual property. And so that may have an impact on future fundraising at the early stage. The later stage where the company can afford to fund their, their, their debt payments from the cash flows, as Charles pointed out, it's an amazing thing. But just seeing venture debt as, as um, just another tool to raise cash, as Charles pointed out, there's some nuances there. Um, the, um, to your other point, Bobby, I would just say in the, in the 20 years I've been doing this, the customer service angle uh, from investors has really improved. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we know that entrepreneurs have lots of opportunities to raise capital from different sources. So if you can't get a hold of us, I think Darwinism will weed us out. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just don't think we'll be in business because uh, the, the entrepreneurs deserve that level of service and there is that customer support. Um, I like I like the idea of uh, the talking about sales and uh, proof of concept, and I would push it also one step further is uh, is uh, controlling your cost because uh, you're raising money but you're spending it too. So uh, make sure you have you have um, you have a good control on your on your cost. So that money lasts uh, longer. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for everyone uh, sharing your um, wisdom and insights. So um, we'll just go very quickly uh, one by one. If you have any parting words, words of wisdom, um, or if you've already expelled all of your wisdom, then just let us know um, where we can get in touch, where entrepreneurs and startups can get in touch with you. I can start. I guess no no additional wisdom to be dispensed. I'm more like a trickle of knowledge than a fountain. Um, but uh, that being said, anyone who wants to get in touch with us, I think through BDC's website on the Deep Tech Fund page, uh, there's an email address there. It's checked daily. And uh, otherwise, I mean, you know, reach out to Helge or Emily at Tandem Lodge. They're great people. They can help you and they can find their way to me. So multiple ways to get in touch um, and happy to take any meeting anytime. Uh, Bobby, the advice I would give is is get to know your investor, see see what they've backed, see what their bio is, what their background is, and um, are they the right investor for you? To Charles's point, um, getting in touch with Risk Capital, uh, we're on Twitter, um, and my partner Colin and I are both on LinkedIn. So we look forward to hearing from folks. Um, best best advice would would be uh, would give is a create event, try it, go for it. And um, and I can be reached on LinkedIn or through um, Emily or LG. Same with me. Uh, thank you for having me today. I think that, that was a very insightful discussion. Hopefully, the entrepreneurs can uh, can learn a lot from uh, from just uh, the, the the discussion we've had. Uh, on my end, if you want to reach me, uh, our email is info at boreal.vc, or you can check out our website at boreal.vc. And I'd be happy to uh, to connect with you either through uh, Elgate, Tandem Launch, or uh, or Emily, and uh, and get to know what you're what you're building on and build that that uh, relationship that we just talked about, <laughs> or actually start doing so. So thank you for having me today. Great, thank you everyone again uh, for joining us today, and thank you uh, to those who are listening. Um, we value your time. Uh, Tandem Launch is a deep tech startup boundary. And so if you have a PhD or master's in a technical discipline and aspirations to create your own startup, 
uh, then you can reach out to me. Uh, you can find my contact information on the website, uh, www.tenamunch.com, or you can hit me up on LinkedIn, Bobby Bedochka. I'm the only one in the world. Um, and if you, uh, if you like what you see, you can subscribe to our podcast, The Launch. Um, for more experts in the world of tech entrepreneurship, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So thank you again, everyone, and have a great day.